one. Can y'all hear me? Okay. Um, good morning. I'm Ada Moore. I am uh, fairly new to Fort Worth Prez. Uh, we moved to Texas this past summer in July. And um, I just want to thank you guys for being here on this dreary day. It's not fun to drive in, much or get out of bed, much less drive in, um, even though we so desperately need the rain. Um, and I also know that life can get terribly busy um, and that making time to be with one another, to study God's word seems like a luxury that you sometimes can't afford. Um, but I do hope that over the course of this study, like I have, um, I've just begun to realize how absolutely necessary this is. Like it is just so important to my life, um, not just for my own spiritual growth and health and not just for your own spiritual growth and health, but um, for those around you. Like we really do need each other. I have loved um, the voices of the women here that have come into my mind as we've talked about God's word. Um, we need each other. And we certainly need God's presence and his word. Um, so with that said, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant, John, for his truthful words for the way you have used the spirit to bring light to this world through your word, your son, Jesus Christ. We are brought so low at the thought of your son's death. Would your spirit be present now again, shining a light on the glory revealed through the cross. Amen. Um, just a little disclaimer. Um, if I say anything smart, someone else has said it. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to be, uh, conscious of citing the works, but really if I say anything that sounds intelligent, it's D.A. Carson. So there. Um, <sighs> glory is a funny, funny thing um, because it's only possible um, when you sacrifice everything. I'm going to read from John 1 verse 14, and then we're going to go. Um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I think it is somewhat easy to read about the crucifixion with our 21st century eyes and minds, right? It's just part of this Jesus story, something we've heard or read about since we were children. Um, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. The crucifixion was barbaric, yada, yada, yada. Um, even in reading commentary, commentaries, I pluralize that, even reading a commentary, um, to prepare for this, everything seemed so matter of fact. Here's what happened. Here are the facts. Jesus was put on trial. He's found guilty. He was killed. Um, here's the little details and why they matter, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's just so easy to let myself gloss over it because it is exhausting. It is exhausting to think about. I don't want to think about this. And I really try to avoid thinking about this. I like where we are now. I like this side of the story. Um, but as George Costanza would say, uh, you yada yada the best part. Yada yada the best part. Uh, this morning we're going to focus on two particular aspects of John's account of Christ's death in the hopes that our eyes would be open to the magnitude of what occurs at this, the most crucial moment in all of history that we would let ourselves go there to the place of total amazement, total discomfort and tension, and what I hope results in total trust, 
trust in a good God, in his word, his spirit, and his son. Uh, To begin, we're going to focus on the historical narrative that John presents. Um, It is matter of fact. This is a short little chapter. Boom. Crucifixion. Um, Why would that, what would that historical accuracy mean to those who would read these words first? The people and places in this narrative would have grabbed hold of these Jewish converts who John is writing to. And the same can be true for us as well. Um, And secondly, uh, there is an overwhelming theme of God's sovereign will throughout this chapter. Uh, John is clear that the horror of the cross is under the guiding hand of God himself. And John wants more than anything for his readers to know this. All right, let's go. So chapter 18 has led us in no less detail to this point in history, the end of Jesus's public trial and his death. Uh, This is also not too hard for our 21st century ears to hear. I can think of a half a dozen public trials that have captured our nation's attention. Uh, Two years ago, Ryan and I found ourselves enthralled in the podcast Serial, um, a documentary of sorts, giving us a look into the trial and conviction of Adnan Syed. Um, I haven't listened to season two yet, Um, but thousands of people were given the opportunity to publicly declare the guilt or innocence of a young man. And frankly, I'm still confused. Like I, he could have done it. I don't know. Um, If you don't know what serial is, this will sound confusing, but it's a trial and you're just never left with this certainty of he's guilty or not guilty. Um, Anyway, But that's our reality, isn't it? Our wants, desires, insecurities, and personal paradigms can create a picture in our hearts and minds that very little, including the truth, making of murderer, um, can persuade. And this brings us to the Jesus, this brings us to Jesus' trial. But thankfully, John is not PBS, and uh, he will not leave us with doubts or questions. He doesn't want to leave us there. Um, He is plain and straightforward with the account. Uh, Pilate is still a major player here. He knows Jesus is innocent, but the reality is he's a politician. And that's a word we're all familiar with as well. Um, Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea, and he is found in all four Gospels and governed Judea from 26 to 36 AD. Lisa did a little of this history last week. Um, This is no fantasy. History and scripture aren't meeting up here conveniently. Our text is history itself. Um, Just ask anyone who was there. Um, That was my joke. So (laughs) the Roman soldiers who implement Pilate's judgment are not figments of anyone's imagination. Um, The scene playing out before the first readers of John would be familiar, and they would fall in line with the standards of a criminal trial. It's the details, though, that give us the confidence to believe this all happened to the man, Jesus, specifically. Um, This, the tragedy of the crucifixion, is not what I would use to promote a world religion, but it's what our God uses. Uh, to illustrate that, we I read the book Unbroken in like a sitting. It was so good. So when Angelina Jolie decides to make this movie, we're so excited. And um, my in-laws don't read, but um, they we're like, go see this movie. It is, it's going to be amazing. It has to be amazing. So Christmas Day, my mother and father-in-law go to see Unbroken. <laughs> and um, they call us afterwards. And my mother-in-law is just depressed. She's like, 
Ryan, that was the worst movie I have ever seen in my life. I sat there for two hours watching a man be tortured. What was the point of that? It was horrible. It was horrible. Now, if Angelina Jolie had included the second half of the book and the whole purpose of the book, it would have um, made the, the torture scenes more impactful in such a huge way. But she didn't. She thought, surely his survival of this will be enough for audiences to like pull strength from. But it wasn't. It was depressing. It was gory. It was so unnecessary. Um, But John wants us to soak this up. He He wants us to know, because he knows that Jesus's death is the crux, the ultimate reality of what the world needs. Because as Brene Brown says so beautifully, In order for forgiveness to work, something has to die. In order for forgiveness to work, something has to die. I'm not going to flush that out. I'd love to over coffee or some delicious meal in Fort Worth somewhere. So anytime. Um, So how does Jesus die? Terribly. Terribly. The first step to his death is the utter betrayal of those who should be worshiping him. Pilate has done his best, not necessarily to get Jesus off, as you guys read um, the hook, but to stop this Jewish ridiculousness. These Jews are like mosquitoes to Pilate. He is so just, why am I here? I am Rome. I am a Roman citizen. Uh, These Jews are nothing, and they cause all this ruckus over just stupid things. Um, So he has this initial beating of Jesus done. In the Latin, it's called the fustigatio, F-U-S-T-I-G-A-T-I-O, for a little Bible trivia for later. Um, This is to prove to the Jews, kind of to appease them, but really to prove to the Jews that Jesus is just a man. He is nothing for the Jews to be afraid of. He's certainly not a king. And the mocking of the Roman soldiers um, through this first beating would add to that argument. It would also add to the pain as they place a crown of thorns on his head. Um, what is the big deal? He is clearly just a man. Look, I beat the stew out of him. He's, fi- he's a man. What God would let this happen? Um, but it is a big deal to certain people whose minds are made up. If you're going to place yourself in this story in any way, here is where I suggest you start. The Jewish leaders we encounter in chapter 18 haven't changed much, only their vitriol has increased. The chief priests want Jesus dead, and they will go to any lengths, even denying the central tenet of their faith, as they proclaim in verse 15, we have no king but Caesar to do it. Look, there is no better way to prove to people that someone claiming their God isn't God than by killing them, period. They clamor for his crucifixion. Nothing else will satisfy them. So Pilate, ready to be done with all of it, passively allows it. And so begins his death scene. Uh, Verse 16 says, so they took Jesus. This is where John's readers would know. um, This is the Roman soldier's taking Jesus. The Jews had no authority to crucify anybody. Um, 
So they took him. The other gospels confirm this, and this would be in line with Roman punishment. Um, this is where the second brutal beating occurs. Um, this beating was to make death come quicker. Um, and it is called um, the verberatio, V-E-R-B-E-R-A-T-I-O. And someone can break that word down and tell me what it means later. But um, here's what this would be. The victim was stripped and tied to a post and then beaten by several torturers. These would be the soldiers here until they were exhausted or their commanding officer called them off. For victims who, like Jesus, were neither Roman citizens nor soldiers, the favorite instrument was a whip. His long leather tongs were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or other metal. The beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died right there. And often these scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed. So Jesus endures this verberatio, and then carries his cross to Golgotha. Pilate then inscribes the sign above his head in, in glory's irony, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus is nailed to the cross and the cross is erected. The Roman soldiers cast lots for his tunic and divide his other garments, which is also extremely was customary at the time. The apostle includes the very intimate detail of Jesus caring for his mother. Um, he's given some sour wine, and then it's done. He breathes his last. The soldiers then pierce his side, confirming his death. And Joseph and Nicodemus ask for his body and bury him. What John wants his readers to know is simple. Jesus was innocent. His trial was put on display in the world's greatest irony. <laughs> And he was killed, dead, done, no more, no less. And who was responsible for this injustice? All of us, Jews and Gentiles alike. We killed Jesus. As horrific as this is, now we've come to the really unimaginable part, the part where we go back to the details and find ourselves in serious tension. God allowed this. This injustice was all carried out under the watchful and sovereign hands of a loving Heavenly Father. And it's His own Son who first, let, first lets us see into this mystery. In verse 10 and 11, we see a clear picture of who is actually in control when Jesus says to Pilate, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What? <laughs> what? How can this be? How can a loving God allow so much injustice, so much suffering to happen to his own son? Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 53:10. yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Carson says this, and it's the tension I want you to swim in. Even the worst evil cannot escape the outer boundaries of God's sovereignty. Yet God's sovereignty never mitigates the responsibility and guilt of moral agents who operate under divine sovereignty. 
while their voluntary decisions and their evil rebellion never render God utterly contingent. Said another way, if God merely outwits his enemies, if he's a Marvel comic or Superman or Batman, because I know the difference, whose evil sets both the agenda and the pace, then the mission of the son to die for fallen sinners is reduced to a mere afterthought. Did God come up with this on the spot? If God's sovereignty capsizes all human responsibility, if we're just puppets, then it is hard to see why the mission of the son should be undertaken at all, since in that case, there are no sins for the Lamb of God to take away. And I'm going to say it in the Ada way. God is God, the creator. We are human, the created. And we need Jesus to be both and bridge the gap. God is God, the creator. We are human, the created. And we need Jesus to be both and bridge the gap. And he can and he does. You know, the Jewish leaders are no different than we are. We will go to absurd lengths to prove to ourselves, convince ourselves, that Jesus is not the king he says that he is, that he is not God, and that God is not God. And so often we use our suffering to do it. Instead of letting our suffering prove that Jesus is the Christ, if pain and suffering are what you let sway you to believe that God can't be real, that he can't be loving, then I want to ask you something. What God does leave you in a state of total ease? What God have you found that is making the world better? Is it education? Is it technology, money, self-control, or I'm sorry, control, self-control, self-love or self-confidence? Let me push you even further. When pain is real, when life falls apart, and it has for everyone in this room, and it will, and it will again, and it will again. Do those gods understand? Do those gods enter into that pain? Christ can and Christ does. There is nothing about suffering that God doesn't understand. And we are reading the reality of that right here. But here's the real beauty and the kicker. This is not only a way for God to empathize with suffering. This is not just Jesus dying on the cross so that um, we can be on the same page about what this feels like and we can kind of be together in like our sorrow. Um, this is God's response to it. What we find here at Jesus' death is truly amazing. We find Old Testament scripture being fulfilled over and over again in the Passion this emphasis of John's, like the scripture being fulfilled, this is John's battle cry. He is the Christ. He is the Christ. Jesus is not here at this point just to carry the weight of our sins and bear God's wrath for them. Certainly no less than that. But he is here to make all things right. To usher in a new age. An age where the Old Testament finds its fullness and the promises God made to Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. They come to fruition here. It is finished is not a cry of defeat. It is finished is a cry of accomplishment. But what does it look like to fulfill those promises? What does it look like to accomplish God's purposes? It looks like suffering unimaginable suffering 
And this is glory. And what's funny is that the Old Testament tells us it would be this way. And John finds it so important for you to know that God is in total control of what's happening. Know then that this is the sovereign plan of the Father. So what? So that you would believe. You would believe that God keeps his promises. And do you know what his biggest promise is? (sighs) That he will be with his people. God will not let death itself keep him from you. I cannot do that. I cannot let death. Death keeps me from relationship. I don't have that power. Death will separate me from the people I love. It will happen to all of us. It will separate me from my children. It will separate me from my husband. It will separate me from my friends. God doesn't work that way. Death will not keep him from you. So how do I prove this to you? (laughs) Well, John does it. When the scripture is being fulfilled, this is John saying, God is faithful. God keeps his promise. His big promise is for you to be with him. Here it is. Here it is. So let's look at verse 24. They divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. It was customary, as I said before, for the soldiers to do this at a crucifixion. However, Jesus's tunic was in a one long piece. um, So to tear it would depreciate its value. It wouldn't make any sense. So they you know, they cast lots to see who gets it. Such a small detail, not really that important, right? But don't you know that it's when the smallest of things, um, and I remember Ryan, say, Ryan saying this when he did the sermon about the plagues, like that God cared about the gnats, like the gnats brought forth God's purposes. Um, it's in the smallest of things that God is glorified. So here is Jesus's glory. Um, these soldiers are totally responsible for their actions and, um, their actions also in a big way preserve the integrity of these eyewitness accounts. Um, but they are not outside the good use of God. The Psalm quoted here, um, these are David's words from Psalm 22 and John knows that Jewish converts need to hear them and see the truth. Jesus is the true King, the King David never could be. The king you've always longed for, the one who lays down his life for his, this is his people. In verse 28, uh, we see another fulfillment of scripture. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Again, looking back to David, um, there are two different Psalms that this uh It's possible it comes from, but they're both David's words. Um, Psalm 22, again, verse 15, and my tongue sticks to my jaws or, and or Psalm 69, 21. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Either way, um, whatever, which one you want to grab onto, John is pointing his readers towards the truth. Every part of this passion, every part was not only in the father's plan of redemption, but a consequence of the son's direct obedience to it. We are centuries away from those words and they are coming to fruition here. God keeps his promises. 
And that's a Carson quote. Um, <laughs> we see David's words coming to life in the actual person he was pointing to all those years ago. And it just reminded me so much of that great hymn whose first line is, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. And finally, in verse 36, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. In verse 37, and again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. A um, couple different ways to look at this. Um, not one of his bones will be broken can be taken two ways. Uh, it can be seen from Numbers 9-12 and Exodus 12-4. Um, we're in the middle of Passover. Um, this is a reference to the Passover lamb. It can, the Passover lamb could have no broken bones. Um, you can ask God that later, but why? That is, you know, he could have no broken bones. He had to be perfect, in a sense, for the sacrifice to be, um, for sin to be atoned for. Um, and then the uh, also could this could be looked at from Psalm thirty four twenty, um, which is the protection of the righteous man. Uh, the psalm says he protects all his bones; not one of them will be broken. This Passover lamb image and this care of the righteous man, uh, good Jews would know their scripture. These Jewish converts would know their scripture. These images would conjure the right picture. This is the Messiah who is now dying on the cross. Look, look at the atonement. Look at the righteous man taking on the weight of the world. Um, and then the second half of this um, where we see, where he talks about, um, we will mourn, um, they will look on him who they have pierced. That is a reference to um, Zechariah twelve ten. Um, really God's promised shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The verse says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and peace for mercy. So that when they took, when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Um, John's kind of using this in two ways. The, the piercing of his side is this absolute certainty that Jesus is dead. He's dead. Um, the other side of this is someday we are going to look at these wounds. Everybody, everybody ever made will look at the wounds on Jesus's body. They will see his pierced side and there's going to be two different responses to it. <laughs> you are going to be on your knees in repentance and contrition, knowing I did that to an innocent man. That is my savior who, who took that sword for me. Or you're going to be looking at that wound in total despair, knowing that you never recognized the king of this world. Um, this, is, this is John's presentation to Jewish converts and to you. The piercing of his side, both the soldiers... The Roman soldiers who were there and the disciples saw it, and they're going to mean the same, or they're going to mean different things um, to each of them, and it's the same for us. One day we will all mourn these wounds, either in repentance or in um, desperation. So how do we wrap this up? Well, again, we see beautiful details that promote both man's responsibility and God's good, loving providence in Joseph and Nicodemus. I think... Um, and I told the ladies this morning, 
I'm sure I'm the first one to think of this. Um, but this really is the first work of the church that carries God's mission forward in a set of unthinkable, painful, tragic circumstances. A disciple, Joseph, and possibly a new convert, Nicodemus, are given the body of Jesus to bury. In their reality then, this is a tragedy. There is no doubt that they would be grieving the loss of their friend, teacher, Messiah, king. Um, Their hopes, their dreams, dashed, gone, done. Life is falling apart. This cannot be happening. But we are going to honor this man. We're not going to let him stay on the cross through the night, which in this world would make him look accursed by God. We are taking him down. We are burying him. Um, And again, this, this reality of Jesus is dead. He's dead. Don't let anybody tell you different. Dead as a doornail. Um, so in their reality then, this is a tragedy. But in their reality now, and in our reality now, this is a glory on display. Because who but God, who but God can defeat death? And I'm just going to close with this little poem from S.W. Gandhi um, that Carson writes. I had no idea this existed. Um, in hell, I think this is probably to put this to a song too, but in hell, he hell laid low, made sin, he sin or threw, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for a moment to reflect and soak up the reality of what it took to bring us to you. Lord, would your son Jesus receive all the glory for this incredible act none of us could do. Um, Lord, would you make this real in our hearts that in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of the world's brutality that we see and feel and encounter on a daily basis, would you... Extend your kindness even more and make it true in our hearts, true in our minds, true in the things that our hands and feet do, that not only, not only have you entered into every type of suffering, not only do you understand what it feels like, both physically, mentally, spiritually, to suffer, um, but that you have responded to it and that no other God does that for his people. No other God makes a way. No other God puts things right. 
Lord, would we just marinate in that, um, that this death of your son is your response. Um, it is your ultimate plan so that we would be with you. Amen.